So we're trying to finish our series that we started the year with. Uh, so if you've kind of just joined us this morning or maybe in the last week or two, uh, we started this year trying to press the mental, emotional, faith reset button by making us think about our lives, by making us pause and consider what, what exactly are we doing and how are we approaching the strategy to live life in the year 2024. And well, you know, I stood up an illustration to something that we're all familiar with. At some point in our lives, we've, we've played a board game and we've approached that board game with some sense of strategy, some way of doing the game, understanding the game, having a strategy when it's my turn, what's my priority, what am I gonna do this time? and. And yet you can't play the game without understanding the outcome of the game. It would be a foolish thing for you to try and play a game that you don't know. How do you win this game? How do you actually know if you're in steps that are leading to a good direction? You know, if you've never played golf before and no one told you, no, 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 no. It's the low score that wins, right? I mean, if it was a high score that wins, I would be professional. I would not be here this morning. I would be out playing golf professionally because I could do the high score thing. It's when you learn that, no, no, you're having a good round of golf if the score is low, right? Well, how do you know if your life is going well, right? I mean, you're probably emotionally asking yourself some questions at different moments. You're trying to figure out, hey, am I, am I living a good life? Right? And, and you do get the moments, whether it's your 60th birthday or whatever it is, where you, you, you do kind of pause and you ask some questions about, do I like the way this is going? Am, am I kind of happy with the direction and, and where I am at this point in the game, so to speak? Well, you really cannot do that if you have no sense of how does this game end? What's going to happen at the close of this thing when you put everything back in the box? Well, if you didn't start in the right place, you're almost definitely not going to end in the right place in that category, right? So before, if you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 24, this will be the last time your Bible will flop open to Psalm 24 as we move on from here. Let me start with a thought from... Jeffrey Grogan wrote a book called Prayer, Praise, and Prophecy. It's a theology of the Psalms. If if you ever want to do just a study of the Psalms, this will be a wonderful book for you to get a hold of, just to let you enjoy what's here in the Psalms. But he says something here that's worth making sure we take notice of. He says, every general theological work, and can I just stick the word life in there for theological Every general life work needs to begin with the doctrine of God. I'm sorry. Why? Because what we believe about God affects what we believe about all else. In fact, some Christian philosophers have argued that we have not really understood anything in the universe until we have seen its relationship to God for he is the unchanging eternal fact and the creator of all that exists so that 
relationship to him must be the most basic relationship of all. Certainly, the doctrine of God is the base from which all theology arises. This is where it comes from. And to which it all returns. For all of us, our beliefs as well as our actions ought to have God as their focus. So, if you're playing the game of Yashab, that word means dwelling in God's world. It's like you were presented with the game. You opened the box, you took out your little game piece, whatever your little shape or was that you were going to put on the board to play the game, right? Remember the, the, the map of our, I think we got a map, remember, you're going to put this thing down somewhere and, you know, 60 years ago, I put mine down somewhere and started to play the game and it's been my turn and I've been passing through different locations, different experiences, Somewhere along the line, for me as a teenager, I finally picked up the instructions and began to read them. So I played for a little while with no instructions. How's that going, everybody? Pretty interesting, right? What you fill in life with when you don't have the instructions. You read the instructions, and just in case everybody needs to know, you, you know, the average time of playing the game these days is 79 years. So you can play the game for 79 years. Some of us aren't going to make it to 79. Some of us are going to go a little beyond that. But somewhere in that neighborhood is... You're going to play the game for a defined length of time. And then you're going to do what all of us did as kids. You're going to put the game back in the box. And then what happens? When my turn is over. Is the game really over? Well, no, you know, because existence never goes away. I'm going to exist in all of eternity. And I probably need to know that. I probably need to know something about that existence and that day that's coming when I'm traveling through some of these places right here. When I venture into some season of challenge or difficulty or loss or celebration or or honing my skills or becoming really good at things or becoming dependent upon people, whatever valley or mountain or plateau that I'm traveling through, I might need to keep in mind something bigger than my moment. Does that make sense? So there's, there's really big stuff. It's kind of like our, our game, Yashab. It's got this really big thing at the beginning, and it's got this really big thing at the end. And then you and I are doing some little small things in the in-between. Not to be insulting to anybody, but most of what we're doing is pretty small. But Psalm 24, turn there with me. Let's read this once again. and Let's look at what happens when you... Get to the end of the game and you put it back in the box. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who yashab, those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. All right, now here... Our, our first big item, our first ultimate item is the very beginning of the Bible. It is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, right? There was nothing. 
There was nothing for God to have to work with that forced his hand to make anything the way it is. There was nothing as though this is version two and God tweaked it. And from version one, he made version two. As though, you see, when we go to understand life, there was some other things that God had to report back to. You do see that doesn't exist, right? There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And God creates from that which was empty and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be. And stuff started popping up every time he said that. Out of his mind, out of his will, out of his character, things popped into existence mysteriously and powerfully. And then God turns around and says, hey, when you go to do your life, you might want to remember that. You might want to remember where this stuff comes from. You might want to remember who designed it, right? I don't know if you, if you, if you buy something new and you bring it home and it comes with a warranty and, and you put it together and it doesn't work right. What do you do? You go to the neighbor next door and complain about it? Hopefully you call the manufacturer, right? You say, hey, hey, what's up with this thing? It doesn't seem to be doing this or doesn't seem to be doing it. All right, well, this is creation. It belongs to the creator, So when you and I go to do life and it kind of gets in a weird spot, we should go back to the creator and bring that up with him. And then he describes a little small space, the in-between space you and I are doing life in. Verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place, right? And we, we learn that's the description of the presence of God. And whether you have figured this out about the game of life, Something inside of you wants to find its way back to its creator. That's the longing inside of you. The thing you're trying to manage that that keeps pulling on you to do stuff in your life. That's what it wants. It wants him. If you make the mistake of thinking it wants something else, you will spend your 79 years playing the game chasing all the wrong stuff. It wants to find his holy place, the place where his presence dwells. Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I wish I could chase verse five, right? When you think about receiving blessing from the Lord, I know it's tempting. You start listing off, well, what is it? What is it that you're looking to receive? Well, you know, I don't know, maybe some health, maybe some finances, maybe a good relationship, blah, blah, blah. Do you remember what God told Abraham his blessing would be? I am your great reward, Abraham. I'm your reward. Right, so don't detach that from this passage. When God goes to reward you and you stare out at life, you can be thinking, well, reward means I got something left over at the end of the month after I pay bills. Reward means a good doctor's report. I, I, I get that. And God does show up in those spaces. But from God's standpoint, he is our great reward. He is our righteousness, right? He's going to give us this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And here's what happens when you get to the end of the game. We're done. We've rolled the dice for the last time. The calendar gets closed. The map gets put away. An 
And all of a sudden, this sound begins to erupt. You begin to hear a massive crowd like you have never seen. You've never been in a Superdome this big. You've never heard this many voices. You've never heard such an uproar in all of your existence. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Well, who is this king of glory? Yahweh, the Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord. Mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is the end of the game. This is when you and I, our little stories and all that we did and all that meant something to us and all the alarm clock settings and all the activities that we scheduled and, and when it gets to the end of the game, look what gets celebrated at the end of the game. I don't see me. Except I'm in the crowd. I see one. I see this king of glory and all of creation finally finally has this moment where it sees everything correctly and all the glory goes to him and as far as the eye can see there are heavenly hosts there are human beings there is the voice of creation this scene of these gates it's 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 the place of the city entrance the place where for years and years and years, the people who sat in the gates, they were, they were the, the elders and, and the people who were trying to direct the city into good things in the future. Political discussion was going on there. Who's going to be the next this? How do we handle this? We've heard rumor of warfare in a nearby city. How does that affect us? Are our gates strong? How do we protect ourselves? This is the common conversation in the gates of the city. But the game is over. And this is what the game, that city now looks like. The entranceway has a massive audience and ushered into this city, this heavenly city, is the ruling king of glory. Right? The, right we just looked at Genesis. At the end of Psalm 24, you're all the way to the end of Revelation. Right? So if you turn to Revelation chapter 21, here is the gates. This is what's happening in Revelation 21. Here's the end game of this game. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first one, the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That map, no more, put away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is all for him, isn't it? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, I know it doesn't say this word, but I feel like this is how it's going to feel. Finally, the dwelling place of God is with man. What was all this? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord about? Who will stand 
and dwell with him. Oh, finally, in this city, finally, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear. Oh, Lord, thank you for us to put that map away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Put the box. Amen. You can clap for that one. Put the box back up on the shelf. You are done playing the dwelling on a fallen world planet that God had created. You are done. And then God says in Revelation 22 verse 13. He says, here's your big giant things here that need to inform my little space of doing life every day. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember that thing that was lost in the beginning? That very life presence of God, it was lost, but they may have the right to the tree of life And that they may enter the city by the gates. See those ancient gates that are lifting their voice? You and I are going to walk through those gates with a massive crowd that you have never laid eyes on ever in your life. And in that moment, we are going to be singing about the king of glory. We are going to see and remember and take in and focus upon this king of glory. And there will be shouts and noise and activity and celebration like you've never seen before. That is what's coming. That awaits us. But the Bible interacts with it in a way that wants to pull it into right now in some way. I need to know that's coming and there's a dimension of experiencing it that awaits me. But I need to pull that reality into right here and right now. So I put in your outline a little section called ultimate things and urgent things. Because we started with Psalm 24 telling us about ultimate things. Where'd all this come from? Well, that's an ultimate thing. How's it all going to end? That's an ultimate thing. What about my life in between? Not an ultimate thing, but an urgent thing, isn't it? My life feels urgent. My life has got a lot of activity in it. There's stuff here. But remember our our friend Jeffrey Grogan, he, he put the ultimate thing in the presence of our daily spaces. He says, what we believe about God affects what we believe about all else in fact we've not really understood anything in the universe until we've seen its relationship to god he is the unchanging eternal fact and the creator of all that exists so that relationship to him must be the most basic relationship of all could you use to get reminded of that as you're freaking out about what relationship in your life is or is not working 
the one that you do or you do not have, the one that you used to have that you don't have anymore. Listen, if you lose sight of this, that he is the ultimate relationship, then can I just warn you? Some other relationship will become your ultimate relationship. And playing the game becomes miserable when local, routine, urgent things and people take up ultimate spaces in our lives. They're not designed for ultimate. The the biggest person in your life, whoever that's going to be, probably going to be your spouse, is not an ultimate person for you. That doesn't mean they're not important. There's lots of things about our life here on earth that, that, that's important. But it's not ultimate. Ultimate things need to stay in ultimate categories. And then they need to speak to us in our daily spaces. He goes on and says, for all of us, our beliefs as well as our actions ought to have God as their focus. Because in the end, that whole crowd, can I just tell you? There's not going to be a person in this throng who's going to be having a conversation about something else. Right? As far as the eye can see, this crowd is all going to be freaking out enamored with the king of glory. And not an ounce of, did you remember to lock the door when we left? Hey, I, I don't have the checkbook. I need to go to Winn-Dixie afterwards. No one's going to be saying that in that moment. The king of glory is going to absorb us. He will be our focus. I wrote in your outline, we cannot understand our existence without engaging a creator, the alpha. And we cannot understand our moments without being informed by eternity. All right, quick summary, Christopher Ash, in his commentary on Psalms, he says, part one of this Psalm, Psalm 24, affirms that the whole earth with all the people, animals, crops, and everything else in it, is the Lord's. And then part two, verse three through six, echoes the question of Psalm 51, 15, verse one. Who may enter and survive in the presence of this covenant God? And then part three, verse seven through 10, celebrates with vivid and memorable repetition the triumphant return of the covenant God after military victory. That's an interesting image. Because the image in Psalm 24 is borrowed from sort of what the Arc de Triomphe is in Paris. It is, it is a celebration of the victory. And what would happen is these massive throng, this parade of welcoming home the victorious king or the victorious general behind him are all the, the troops and the, the victory. And there's this celebration. I mean, think the end of World War II when, when there were these celebrations in Europe of liberation and the, the end of this horrible era has come. That, that's the imagery that gets borrowed here at the end of Psalm 24. He says, putting these together, we may start with part one and part three, our bookends. The creator God is sovereign over all creation, verse one and two. And yet, he needs to win a war against evil to establish his kingdom over all. When, not if, but when he does, he returns to his mountain, his holy place of government, verse seven through 10. When he returns, He brings with him those who are qualified to ascend this mountain to his holy place. These are are ultimate things. 
These are ultimate things that need to explain my daily urgent things. The stuff that, that I'm worried about. The stuff that gets under my skin. The things that trouble me. The news headlines of another report of some kind of evil in this world. And then some kind of way in which the brokenness has shown up in my own pathways and the people that I walk with, the conflicts that are in my family, the broken relationships that may exist among you, the report of a breakdown of health of someone that you love dearly. This is the daily urgent things of our lives. This, this is what makes up our lives. And then we bump into that and there's a little bit of confusion. I thought, I thought God loved me. I thought God was good. I thought God was my father. I would never let this happen to one of my children. Right? Can, you, can you understand there's a little bit of confusion going on in that moment? There's a little bit of my understanding just got out of step with what's going on in this world. Did, did, did I forget that there is a day when the reigning general pulls into town amidst a throng of celebration That day is coming, but do you know what this day is that precedes that day? This is a day of warfare. I get up every day, and so do you, in a world with live bullets and real ammunition, real suffering, real casualties. See, the reason why that day of great celebration at the end of World War II and everybody throwing things and just being super excited and because of the contrast with the days that preceded it. Days of destruction, days of pain, days off the charts, days of nobody knows where this is going. This is horrible. There's real suffering. There's real loss. These are the days that we live in. And part of the urgency that you and I feel as we do life is that we're trying to protect ourselves from these days. And I don't blame anybody for that. I've got a reflex in me that, that doesn't seek out pain. It seeks to rescue me from pain. It's just in me at every turn. And so when I bump into pain instead of bumping into pleasure, when I bump into pain instead of bumping into comfort even, something goes off in me. I kind of want to refund a little bit. I kind of want to know who do I call? Who do I complain to about this? But you know, the other end of the line, if I pick up the phone and call, they may just explain to me, uh, you, you did put your helmet on this morning, right? And your flak jacket and, and your gun, you took it with you? Okay, just wanted to make sure you were ready for the day. You, you do know you're in a war zone, right, Keith? You do know the bombs that are going off around you. Yeah, those aren't going away. I'm, I'm so sorry. There will be a day, though. And we all look forward to that day. But that is not this day. My right here, right now needs to be reminded about some ultimate things, but those ultimate things feel like they're at a distance. Listen, if if the reinvention of human morals taking place on our watch today, the only reason why that's happening is because the creation seems too far away. If you just sat tight and you stared out at God saying, let there be, you think you'd mess with his creation? It might have caught your attention that... Oh my gosh, is it okay if I touch this? Is that okay? I mean, you'd have been freaked out by the God of glory who just speaks and things exist. I think you might be a little more careful about messing up what he just made. But let's face it, that's a long time ago. 
far, far away. And so is the end game thing too. The ultimate end of all this, that feels like a long way away. But Psalm 24 pulls it in. It's like a sandwich. It pulls it in. The beginning and the end, it pulls in and says, hey, when you go to do your life, make sure you hold on to these two ultimate things. But that's not easy to do in our noise, right? James Johnson in his commentary said, the question this psalm asks is one of the most important any man or woman can think about. That's the whole question of your existence. And how do you, how do you relate to God in your existence? This is an ultimate issue that everyone faces. A question everyone must answer. The danger with the really big questions of life, of course, is that we seldom stop to think about them. We can live our lives at 90 miles an hour without ever stopping to ask if we're going in the right direction. This is why almost every year, as far back as I can remember, I have started the year off with a pause button. Because I recognize I'm going 90 miles an hour, and so are all of us, in 2023. The problem is the heading of Scripture is there, and I'm 2023 headed here. And I'm 90 miles an hour going in this direction, and I kind of need to stop old school, get out a map, and figure out, am, am I going in the right direction? But who's got time to stop, right? Don't you have so much going on, so much that's pressing on you, and so much urgent stuff, and so many things that need your attention, and you need to make a decision about that, and you need to have that meeting and that conversation, and you need to cut the grass, and you need to go to the store, and you need to get the kids to school this week, and oh, that one's got a special project going on. There's an endless supply of noise that says, me next, me next, hey, me, pick me, oh, me, I know you're about to go to sleep. That's why I'm bringing this up right now because normally you're too busy for me to get your attention. Uh, so don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Listen to me. You need to talk about me. What about me? We don't pause to think, what am I absorbed in? And these ultimate things, they sit way at a distance. They're huge. They're like mountains, but they're not right here. And we're more concerned about the speed bump before the school zone than that giant mountain over there. We need a little help. Great title of a book, written quite a while ago, actually. Charles Humble wrote a book in the 60s, 1967, called The Tyranny of the Urgent. Charles is one of those guys, and I don't think he's still alive, but if he were... We could all sit down with Charles and say, Charles, you have no idea what you were talking about. But he said something profound. He said, several years ago, an experienced cotton mill manager said to me, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. Can you just pause on that for a second? Does that sound a little too true to be liked? The urgent things of life. Just crowd out the important ones. He didn't realize how hard this maxim hit. It often returns to haunt and rebuke me by raising the critical problem of priorities. We live in constant tension between the urgent and the important. The problem is that the important tasks seldom must be done today or even this week. Extra hours of prayer and Bible study, visit with a non-Christian friend, careful study of an important book, These projects can wait, but the urgent tasks, 
Call for instant action. Endless demands, pressure every hour and day. Now listen to his trouble, poor thing, in 1967. A man's home is no longer his castle. It's no longer a place away from urgent tasks because the telephone breaches the walls with imperious demands. Really, dude? (laughs) You have no idea what you're talking about, pal. That one thing that sits on the wall that seldom rings, that thing is bugging you? Please, can I introduce you to something else besides that stupid phone of yours? My phone. The momentary appeal of these tasks seems irresistible and important, and they devour our energy. But in the light of time's perspective, their deceptive prominence fades With a sense of loss, we recall the important task pushed aside. We realize we've become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. Too true, right? And I'm sure you have had this experience. It is too often my experience that, you know, turning 60 years old is another moment to confess, you know, that how on earth did I get here? All right? Do you get to the end of your little milestones? You know, sometimes it's like, you're kidding me. It's Monday again? It wasn't just Monday yesterday? And then you kind of go through school and your kids go through school and that season comes and goes and you're like, wow, how did that happen so fast? And all of a sudden you're Kids are all moving out. Maybe your empty nest syndrome is set in and, you're, and you pick your head up, right? Because you've been busy, right? You've been raising kids. There's, there's family stuff always. There's homework to be done. There's places to go and there's planning to make and there's decisions and interactions. All of normal life awaits you as well. And then you get to the end of that season and you pick your head up and you're like, where am I? Right? If those of you are kind of like having midlife crisis, can I just tell you that's, that's not a bad term. I know what it kind of is because, oh man, just get over it. You know, it, it's kind of weird. You, you end up focusing on urgent things. And can I just say they're kind of going to depress on you. You're not going to make that go away. But you lose sight of ultimate things when you do that day after day after day after day after day. And then suddenly you're in very different territory than you were the last time you pressed the pause button 30 years ago. And you're asking yourself weird questions and life feels weird. You feel weird. People around you have suddenly become weird. I mean, it's, it's a strange moment. And then next thing, you're going to retire. Your whole career, what you trained for and you did every day of your life. And you went into the office every day. Or you worked on those projects every day, every day, every day. And suddenly, you're done with that. And your first couple of weeks of retirement are great because you traveled and you did some stuff and you took care of some projects. And and then about two months later, you start to kind of realize, where the heck am I? Seriously, I'm, I'm done working? And then, you know, a year or two goes by and if you're the rare exception to this, maybe you are, and you go, what am I going to do every day? <laughs> How did I get here so fast? 
Well, that, all that gives away the fact that you and I can do the urgent stuff of life. And urgent is pressing. Urgent is noisy. Urgent is a needy thing. That if you don't do something with it, the squeaky wheel is going to squeak again and again and again. And if you've got multiple people in your life, you're going to have a lot of squeaky sounds going on all at the same time. But there are some things that we need to be careful about not losing sight of. Right? I wrote in your outline, if we're not careful and intentional... We tend to do vast chunks of life, months, years, child-rearing decades, career decades, with our heads down in a small awareness of what is ultimate in this world and in our particular moments. The Bible didn't design ultimate things to sit that far away from us. When you pick up the instruction manual to dwelling on God's world, it starts with an ultimate thing and it ends with an ultimate thing. Those two things are the biggest things in the psalm and it squeezes your little life in between with all of its little urgencies and all of its moments, right? And don't lose sight. Don't lose sight at the end of it all. Whatever it is you and I are worked up about. When you get to the end and the applause is as deafening of anything you've ever experienced and the, the hearts being celebrating and the clapping and the shouting and the high five going on, it's not going to be about the little urgent things that absorbed me and felt like do or die critical if I don't get this right and that person doesn't respond and they don't change and that job doesn't come through and this situation, it, it's not going to be about that. It's going to be a recognition of how the Lord of glory was in every moment of our existence. How he showed up over and over and over again. And thank God in that moment, we're going to see a whole lot more clearly. So we're going to see things that we actually like, oh, that's what that meant. That's why that took so long and it delayed so long in my life. And you're going to see that in a way that makes you transfer glory to the king of glory who does everything gloriously. And you'll see it all incredibly. You know, I think about great throngs of emotional celebrations that gather. Concerts. All right, not just any concert. Right, I don't know if you've gone to a. I don't know if you've gone to a concert of a band who's kind of like, "Hey, you never heard these guys, but somebody gave me free tickets." Uh, that's a weird experience. Can I just tell you? Or, or it's kind of like, "Yeah, I'm going to go because I know somebody who's playing in it. I don't know any of the songs. Nothing means anything." It's like you kind of walk away with that, saying, like, "Yeah, it was pretty good." But think about—I don't know who your favorite band growing up was. You know, the, the kind of band that wasn't just, didn't, they didn't just have like two or three hits and went away, but the ones that just kind of kept pumping out albums year after year after year. So that, you know, when you were like 10, they were around. And when you were like 15, they were still around. And you were like 18 and then 22. And they just still kept, and all their music was kind of like the, the musical score of your life. I think of that band. And you go to that concert. From the first moment they begin to take the stage right maybe a note gets hit what's what's the behavior of the audience like we're coming to life right this is like oh these guys mean something to us these songs and there's a little bit of a roar starting to starting to happen there And, and then and then they open with one of their anthems and the place goes nuts and like oh they played oh yeah and you tell people about it afterwards 
Uh, the list of songs you can remember in their two-hour set, you tell them they played this and they played this and they played this. What, what, what is it about those songs? Well, those songs sat in your life in a certain way. Significant moments interpreted and, and engaged in your life. And then you get towards the end of the concert and, you know, that typical band, they do more than one encore and, you know, there's a celebration at the end, but at some point the concert is over, right? And in that moment, you know, they're not coming back out this time, right? The, you know, the smoke has gone off. The last song has been sung. They hit the, the last note. The guy jumped down and did that and it's over and the crowd goes nuts, right? It's this amazing mixture of appreciation for the performance, but it's much bigger than that, isn't it? It's sort of like you having a moment to say, thank you for all the moments you were a part of throughout my life. Thank you for the way your songs meant something in this moment and created this memory and that moment. I mean, there's something about doing life without music. God did not plan for that to be our existence. There's something about music and we experience things through the vehicle of that that celebration of this group. And I don't know, back in the day, you guys were lighting lighters because we didn't have phones. But now you, you got your phone light on and you're waving it and you're just, you're screaming to the top of your lungs and you're standing on your chair and you're applauding. That's kind of what this scene is like. At the end of our lives, we finally, we get to the end. We put the game back in the box and we stand at the entranceway of the city and all the songs of God that God played, we get to rethink them. And we're going to have a moment where we're not just going to celebrate, wow, wasn't that an awesome song? It was more than that to us. It was the timing of it. It was the place of God in that moment with us. It was how he went through this season of our lives with us and the way those songs bring up memories. So if you can picture yourself at, at, at a concert like that, or if you're, if you're not a musical person, uh, when the Saints won the Super Bowl, right? Uh, that the confetti cannons are going off at the end of the game. The whole stadium is filled with falling particles. Smiles are everywhere. What's going on in your house? Or if you were here, some of you guys were here. I refused, by the way. I, I didn't want to come here because I didn't want to be interrupted. Um, I wanted all worship to go to the right place. So... But in this moment, there is this incredible celebration. How many of you guys went to the Super Bowl parade in New Orleans when the Saints won the Super Bowl? Um, yeah, you're at this parade, right? I mean, it's kind of like this scene, and, and here comes the team, and there's this celebration. But, you know, if you're from New Orleans, if you're from here, that celebration was a whole lot more than just, hey, you guys won a game. No, no, for all of us who grew up here, you rescued us from wearing bags on our heads year after year of disappointment and being let down and here we go again and who the heck is Russell Erksleben? Why did you use a number one draft pick on a kicker? What is wrong with these people? Years of that come to this moment where we have gathered to celebrate deliverance and a new day, right? That's was at the end of Psalm 24. That's what awaits us. Now, can I just say this? What I just described, I mean, I'm, I'm not an anti-concert person, I'm certainly not an anti-sports person, etc. But those things, if you will, they're, they're kind of like warm-up 
They're, they're, they're where God uses something natural to train you to do something eternal. So your ability to do this, that's great. That's great. I don't know. what. Maybe you learned that when you watched your kid play Little League ball. That was your first. Yeah. Or at some point, you picked up the idea of applauding something. You picked up the idea of staring at something and letting your emotions go. Dude, seriously. Oh, man. Somewhere in you, you got trained to use that reflex. Can I just tell you, all the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. You you didn't come up with that without his involvement. The idea of celebratory praise, of staring at something that makes you jump up and down and freak out in amazement. Yes, it was intended to be used at a football game, at a concert, at something you severely enjoy. But all that stuff was simply training you to use it on him. He is the king of glory. I am forever grateful that the saints won the Super Bowl. As a person born and raised here, lifetime fan, I am forever grateful. It's like if we don't ever win another one, somehow it's okay, right? I can go off into eternity knowing that, okay, something is settled in the football kingdom. Um, But that's not the end game of what I am wired for. When I, when I go to do the game, do you understand when you lose sight of ultimate things, you end up worshiping other things. And I'm not saying, oh, if you're a person, you know, I kind of gig people on this, you know. If you're more capable of celebrating a touchdown at a Saints game than you are at, at celebrating the atonement when it is sung about, there's something really wrong with you. Those are small in-between things. And I'm grateful that God gives us a little stuff to enjoy and celebrate. He does. And and they're part of God's good earth and his good creation. But they're all like warm-up practice for the main event. The main event is, hey, who is the king of glory? And for the gates of the city and everything about creation to turn to him, Yahweh, The mighty warrior, the God of all, he is the king of glory. And the noise in that moment will be an absorption in applause and celebration like we've never seen before. But that's kind of like what this ought to be like when we gather. Because we're remembering that song, that thing God did, that way that he showed up. That victory in the darkest moment, the salvation and righteousness that are mine fully, even though I'm wearing a helmet and with a rifle strapped to my back and there's, I got shot in the leg yesterday, but, but the righteousness of eternity is mine. God is mine. And I, and I need to pull that into my moments every day of my existence. Let me just pick this up and then we're going to spend a few more moments uh, celebrating in the presence of God. When you, when you visit the New Testament, right, not just Psalm 24, this would be a pattern in Scripture. The Bible keeps pulling these ultimate things into our present urgent things. The present urgent stuff steals the headlines from us. It's the vulnerability of being human. Too many small things are a big deal to us. And so the Bible pulls these big things in, right? So I'm just going to read two, two little passages here. 
Paul's having a conversation with the Corinthians. If you remember, the Corinthians were a group of people who struggled with meaningful transformation. Right? Read 1 Corinthians and you're going to find that out. These guys had a lot of sin problems. So however influential God was supposed to be in their lives, they were seeming to have a hard time getting some traction in some of this stuff. So these guys are, are distracted. They've got fleshly pursuits going on. They're not all that spiritual. And then 2 Corinthians comes along and highlights conflict and divisions and people not getting along and them particularly not liking the apostle Paul. And then Paul's going to interact with them. And he's going to pull something ultimate into their moment. Chapter four, verse eight. Here's the here and now. Hey dudes, we are afflicted. We are in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed. Yep. Bunch of us scratching our heads right now, guys, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, yes, but not forsaken. Struck down, I mean, real setbacks among us. Yes, yes, we are, but we're not destroyed. And then he says in verse 16, that we don't lose heart. In the midst of all that, you're not losing heart? Why is that? Although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And everybody who's over 60 says, amen. <laughs> Verse 17. All right, so here's the ultimate. You need a dose of ultimate. Hey, all the 60-year-olds plus, we need a dose of ultimate right here, right? Because my body is telling me some different stuff. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the urgent things, to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. I'm supposed to do that little middle section of Psalm 24 With this in mind, I'm supposed to be pulling it really, really close to me because life is going to feel a little challenging along the way in the in-between. And it's going to feel pressing and urgent and threatening and menacing and it's going to be real bleeding and casualties, etc. I'm going to need to know that. But let me me show you one other way in which this great truth of Psalm 24 is going to get built out by the Apostle Paul. Colossians, this this is Paul's mode of ministry. This is how Paul would meet with us. As we unpack the things that we're going through. He would pull ultimate things into our presence. Colossians 1 verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you next week. In your retirement plan. In social security. No, for the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, but that's really kind of far off for some of us, isn't it? Yeah, Paul's pulling it near to us because it is far off. Of this, you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. And then he unpacks this gospel in Colossians 1 verse 15, a few verses later. He says, he, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For for by him, all things. Does this sound like Psalm 24? 
The earth is the Lord's. The fullness therefore. All things. All things. Were created through him. They all came from him. In heaven and on earth. Visible things. Invisible things. Thrones and dominions. And spooky little creatures. And rulers and authorities. And things you don't see out there. That are crawling around the spiritual universe. That you and I are a part of. All things were created. Through him. And for him. All right, so big thing just got pulled into their life. This is where you came from. This is where everything came from. Oh, I know you're staring at that thing right now and you're thinking that thing's out of control. That thing's going to do whatever it wants to me and to the people that I love. And Paul stops and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you're doing life in between. It's real easy to lose sight of some things, but can I just tell you where all this stuff came from? All things came from him and they all exist for him. And they're intended for a purpose that he is going to fulfill. Verse 17. He is before all things. He's the origin of it all. And in him all things hold together. So this isn't just an idea that, hey, there once was a God who created everything and he went away. No, no, no. Every day he is holding all things together. The universe doesn't implode or explode because he is holding all things together. He's on the job right now in our lives. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now listen to this big thing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This unique person in our history, Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of the cross. That's a big thing. That's an ultimate thing. Verse 21. And you, you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you remember that little section in Psalm 24 after it says, hey, God made everything, which is what Paul just did. And then it turns around and says, well, who gets to be near this God? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't deal deceitfully. That's who gets to be near God. We didn't spend a lot of time in this because we elsewhere spend a lot of time in the doctrine of justification. How are you doing with those things? Clean hands, pure heart, not lifting up your soul to what's false. How's that going to happen for you? You working on that? I mean, did you interrupt that by coming to church today? It's like, man, I've been, I've been working on my clean hands and my pure heart thing. Is this going to be done soon? Because I got to get back to that, you know, because man, I got to stand before God one day and I want to be near him. Are you living your life that way? Because this verse reminds me of something. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you were. Welcome to your contribution. Anybody here thinking that uh, I'm going to try and clean up my act and get right before God? Can I just tell you this is what's going to stick out when you come before God? Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you're not going to be able to get rid of that. It, it is your calling card. It shows up before you do. Here comes Keith, the hostile-minded, evil deed-doer. 
But something weird happened in this world. Something ultimate happened. He, Jesus Christ, reconciled us. Body, by his flesh, in his flesh, by his death. In order to present us, what? Holy and blameless and above reproach. Where am I going to get my clean hands from? And my pure heart from? Where's that going to come from? Ultimately, and this, this in no way, I'm not going to go back and re-preach previous messages. In no way was Psalm 24 trying to say, hey, hey, you don't worry about clean hands. Jesus will take care of that. You don't worry about whether your heart's right. That's all on him, baby. You just go do whatever the heck you want. He's got it covered. Now, the Bible does not sound that way. So if that's what you end up doing with this, you don't listen to the rest of Scripture. But be assured, you cannot self-clean your hands. And you don't have the ability to purify your heart. I don't either. Something ultimate had to have happened for that to get settled, and it did. It's what Jesus Christ did at the cross for me. Look at this thought from James Johnson. Worship team, you guys can come back up here. We read in the Bible that Christ was the only man who was completely lived up to God's requirements. Did he have clean hands? Verse 4. The Bible says that Christ committed no sin. Instead, his hands served us, healed us, and were pierced by nails for you and me. Pure heart. The Bible says he has, he was full of grace and truth. Did he trust in God? The Bible says that he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Truthful? The Bible says that no deceit was ever found in his mouth. So Christ alone met these four requirements. And as our text promises, he received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The resurrection was God's great vindication of his sinless Son, the good news of God's word is that Jesus Christ did not meet God's requirements just for himself. He came to make you and me qualified to come into God's presence. The scriptures say for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an ultimate thing. Now let me just pause and not overlook something here. The most ultimate question of your life has to do with when the box gets put away and this game is over. And it's about, what about the rest of your existence? Because you're going to keep existing after that. Are, are you going to be able to enter the presence of God? Because there's only two options available. The presence of God or not the presence of God. And not the presence of God is this horrible place called hell. So, if I were to ask you today that somehow tragedy struck today and your life suddenly ended today for some reason that you didn't know was coming, and your next step, the box is put away, this game is over. What are you going to do about your relationship with God? Is God going to be cool with you? He's going to let you in to his presence, to his holy presence. And, and, and if he does, why would he do that? 
if your answer sounds anything like, well, listen, Keith, you know, don't get me wrong. I, mean, I'm, I haven't done everything right in my life, but you know, I've, I've tried to lead a pretty good life. Um, you know, I'm not a bad person. If your answer sounds anything like that, then, then you're giving away that you, th- so you think you're going to clean up your hands on your own. And you're going to purify your heart on your own. And you think you're going to somehow be able to do something, what, something religious? Something nice to others? Something sacrificial? That somehow is going to give you access to the presence of God? Listen, I'm not talking about the president of some earthly celebrity who you probably couldn't get in their presence either, right? Because you're not special enough to them. This is the eternal God. You, you think you're going to do something Mr. Keith, evil deeds and hostile heart, you're going to do something that makes your hands clean and your heart pure. And God's going to welcome you into his presence. He's not going to welcome me on that basis. The only way is that something ultimate took place. Jesus Christ came and stood in my place, received all the punishment for all the hostility of my own heart and my failures and my sin, my unclean hands, the ones who get to celebrate at the end in Revelation 22, that their robes have been cleaned and they can now enter the city. Do you know how you clean those robes? Can I just tell you, tide will not do it. It's going to be because your robes have been dipped in the blood of Christ. And you are now going to be given full, total access to the presence of God. That is your only hope this morning. And if you're not sure about that, you can be sure about it. You can this morning, right? Stop lifting your soul up to something that's false, Psalm 24 says. If you think somehow your goodness is going to gain you access to God, that's false. It's false. And if you keep on believing it, you are lifting up your soul to what is false. But if you were to this morning lift your soul to what is true, And put your hope of eternity in Jesus Christ and him alone. In what he ultimately did to cleanse you. You will have access to the full presence of God. When that day comes for you. That day you will be with him. Now let me pull the rest of us into this conversation. Because many of us have have done that in our lives. This is is what we're about to sing and celebrate. right? It's bigger than the saints winning the Super Bowl. It's bigger than the concert you went to where they sung the favorite song that you've ever heard that band play and you high-fived the person you came to the concert with. Could not believe. Took your phone out, recorded it. James Johnson says, the picture in verses 7 through 10 is Christ ascending Mount Zion the hill of the Lord, riding up the gates of the heavenly city as its king. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. These gates are being called to open to Christ as he rides in triumph. So with that picture in mind, we can imagine an angel who responds, well, who is the king of glory? And the answer is shouted back from every voice gathered in this moment. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. How is Christ mighty in battle? 
Christ triumphed over death, hell, and the grave and every urgent thing that touches our lives through his cross. And he rode up the gates of heaven as a conqueror. The battle is won. When you and I gather here, this is, this is warm up for that crowd. This is warm up for the tickets you have. They're in your inbox somewhere. Don't lose them. You can't lose them actually, but that's another point. One day, you're going to pull them out and you're going to gain full access to the presence of God. And in that moment, you are going to sing about the King of glory like you've never sung before. So can I just say this? And I mean, we love all the folks who watch and there's many folks who watch who don't even live here. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of our gatherings. There is something about being in that throng. I don't think at the city gates, anybody will be watching from home. I think we'll all be gathered, pushing our way as close as possible to the king as he rides in and we celebrate his triumph over all the bags we wore on our heads and all the failures and the false promises that never satisfied our lives. And we will lift our voices to this king in great triumph. But listen, it's not okay for that to sit too far away from us. The reason why we sing on Sunday mornings is to pull these realities nearer to us. So that ultimate things this week will live amongst our urgent things. Let's stand up together and let's prepare to celebrate at the ancient gates before the presence of God.
you, but I think I could sing another song or two, <laughs> but time doesn't afford that this morning. You guys have a great Sunday. Be safe and have a great week.